You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Today, we have another returning guest on, and uh, he's no stranger to the podcast at this point. His name is Tom Peplinski, and uh, the last time that he was on here, we talked about shed hunting. Today, we're going to talk about early spring, late season habitat work that you can do on your property that may improve some of the... uh, the bedding areas or the habitat overall on on the places that you hunt and uh, we talk about one of his properties or two of his properties specifically and uh, it's just a really great introductory podcast for those looking to improve the habitat on your farm and it's something that you can do this time of year so it's relative as well so that's what today's podcast is about if you haven't already go to the Iowa Sportsman com right iowasportsman.com that's their website and you can do a lot of things there the first thing that we want you to do is sign up for the magazine right it's an awesome subscription uh, lots of great content in there and you can do that on the website also on the website is a lot of great written content as well so not only do they have some really good um written content on the magazine uh, in the magazine they also have some really good content and articles on the website as well uh, and that's another place that you can find this podcast but if you haven't already subscribed to the Iowa Sportsman podcast please do so you can find it on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts you can also leave a review there that would be uh, very helpful uh, just let people know what you think about it uh, and uh, spread the word tell your friends about this podcast because uh, we're looking to grow and uh, this weekend I know this is a little late but this weekend is the Iowa Deer Classic don't forget to stop by the Iowa sportsman booth at the deer classic i'm gonna be there a little bit throughout the day Uh, i'll be bouncing around on saturday for sure so if you see me stop and say hi i'd really appreciate it and uh, man the the good thing about the deer classic is there's not only do i get to see a lot of people that i haven't seen in a long time i also love checking out the shed antler contest and i love uh checking out the big buck wall so just to just an overall good time at the Deer Classic, so stop by the Iowa Sportsman booth. Other than that, man, I think we're uh, good to go with today's podcast with Tom Peplinski. We are joined again by Mr. Tom Peplinski. How you doing, man? Well, good, Dan. How you been? I feel like uh, I feel like 
when I used to call my mom a lot. I used to call my mom all the time. And I'm not comparing you to my mom, but like uh, <laughs> I used to call my mom all the time and we'd have these weekly chats. And I'm, I feel like we're, we talk a lot now. Yeah, we do. I was, I was actually uh, looking forward to this conversation because our last one was on shed hunting. Yep. And if I could just pick your brain for two minutes on that, I'd, I'd like to before we start this one. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I actually wanted to start off with uh, I wanted to start off with that because number one, it's shed hunting season. Number two, after that last podcast we did about shed hunting, you said that you and your wife have been driving around a lot and looking out, you know, looking at the deer herd in the evenings to see if the antlers have started falling off. So, what have those uh, those rides, those drives with your wife, been telling you? Well, and that's, that's the interesting part. So I am a, an admitted, not a fanatic, like, like you said you are. Yeah. So what really caught my attention is when you said that there's some proof or there's some uh, science behind stress causes deer to drop their antlers, especially in January, February time period. Then we had that major uh, cold event, snow event yep. in Southern Iowa. So I was thinking, okay, they're going to really start dropping. And it was right after we did that last podcast, and we've been watching deer, and we're still, as of this phone conversation right now, seeing probably half the bucks with full rocks. Really? That's that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of bucks shed because I, you know, when I'm I'm glassing a let's say a cut cornfield with 30 deer on it, and I can definitely pick out that that's a a bigger buck, you know, like, like at least a three year old buck or older. I can just tell by the the size of the animal, yeah. and it's shed. And it'll be with three other bucks that got full racks yet. So it's, I don't know if that's everywhere, but that's what I've been seeing. And it's been kind of driving me nuts because I was thinking that uh, after our last podcast, that they were really going to start dropping. I would say right now it's 50, 50, but it almost seemed like it was 50, 50 the last time I talked to you. And it's like, nothing's yeah. been dropping kind of since then. That's kind of what I've been seeing. Huh. So it's, it's crazy. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird because I've heard reports and, you know, just like the rut, right, it, it, it comes and goes, right? Some Sometimes a guy will say, oh, man, the rut is on and popping where I'm at right now. And then his neighbor or, you know, a mile down the road say, man, I've had a shitty rut. There's nothing moving and there's nothing going on. And just like for you, I'm sure you, you said that, you know, there's 50-50. I've heard reports of guys saying, hey, all my all my deer are still holding. And I've even heard reports of guys saying, uh, I don't have a deer on my property with antlers on, on their head. So I'm sure I'm sure it's just pockets, different, you know, different deer shed at different times and are affected different by stress and have different food sources and different bedding habits. And so I, I'm sure it could just be one of, sev like, almost anything, actually. Yeah. I agree. I agree because I was thinking after that cold event, they were going to start really dropping because what you were telling me completely made sense. And I, yeah. I, I'm still not saying that that's not true. Yeah. But it's almost like the deer that made it through that really cold event and snow event. It's like they kept on hanging on to their antlers. So and I, I am seeing quite a few half racks. So there's, there's definitely a lot of bucks that are right on that edge where one side had fallen off already and the other, they're still carrying the other half. Yeah. But you know, here we are almost March. It doesn't surprise me at all. 
yeah. that there's still a lot of bucks carrying full racks. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this. Did that last podcast, other than driving around, did that last podcast motivate you to get out and do a little shed hunting or do a little walking around your properties? No, I didn't, I didn't, go, I, I, didn't, I didn't get out and, and do any shed hunting because I just as soon wait until they're all dropped. That's, yeah. that's kind of, I don't, I don't feel like going into my bedding areas or, or walking back in off of food sources and stuff. And I, and I know that's probably not a big deal in February and March, but I just as soon be a little more efficient and put the miles on when I'm not seeing, you know, full racks and half racks and stuff like that. But I tell you what, after that last podcast, um, my bride and I have been driving around almost daily glassing the cut corn and the standing beans and stuff that we know are around. And if we're not driving around, you know, I'm just glassing from my house because from my house, I can look south, probably a mile rolling hills. And with the spotting scope, you know, I can see 40, 50, 60 deer a night because I'm covering probably a mile. Yeah. So we're doing that every night or driving around every night. And that's a direct result of our last podcast because my curiosity has, has kind of gotten the best of me here now what's going on. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, at least it's getting you outside, man. I, you know what's going to happen is you're going to wait. You're going to go out and you're going to find all these sheds, right? And I probably won't find any. And then I'll, I'll blame you for having beginner's luck. And then I'll get mad and I'll get jealous at you, right? And then the next time we, you hop on the podcast, we'll be like, you son of a gun, right? You found all the sheds and here I am putting on miles and miles and didn't find anything. And Well, it sure does seem like every year <laughs> when I'm putting in food plots or like getting ready to put in food plots or whatever, I, I'll actually find just as many then as when I'm actually looking for them. Yeah. So... I have a couple buddies who have shed dogs. Um, they've trained their dogs to go and I guess similar to how you train a dog to go bump pheasants, they'll they're able to sniff out sheds or find sheds and bring them to them. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I I like walking and stuff, but they don't really have to try. They just kind of walk out in the woods and their dog brings them all the sheds. They'll they'll find 20 30 sheds a year just when they're out in the woods with their dogs. Oh, I'd be all, I'd be all right with me. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I if I could if I knew how to train a dog to do that, I'd do it. Yeah. Me, me too. Me too. But today we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to your heart. You mentioned that on the last podcast that that you over over the years you have really fallen in love with working the land and in working on the habitat on the farms that you own. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I think I want to start this off really high level and just ask you the simple question, why did you fall in love with working on the habitat on your farms? I think it's because it extends my season all 12 months. I think, I think that's the number one reason why I do it. I don't, I don't do it necessarily because I think the deer need better habitat. Um, I don't do it necessarily because I think uh, if you do it, or if you don't do it, I should say you, you can't kill a nice deer. I do it because it's fun to do, and it allows me to be part of the whitetail season basically all 12 months. Yeah. 
because there's always there's always something to do habitat wise if you, even if you're not physically doing it you can be planning for it you can be you know purchasing your trees through the dnr there's always something to do if once you get into habitat and there's other benefits for it but at a very high level that's why i do it yeah because it's 12 months it keeps me in the in the game 12 months here gotcha okay how long have you been a property owner well i've been a property owner in southern iowa since 2012 I I owned land in Wisconsin for probably well I'm guessing now 27 years I owned land and I just sold that last year. Okay. And then we also had a when I say we there was a group of guys we had a, a really big acreage lease in western Wisconsin for a number of years. I'm I'm just guessing maybe 13 years. Okay. So between that lease and owning land in southern Iowa I've been doing property management, habitat, food plot type stuff for probably 20 to 25 years. Okay. All right. But so on my own farms that I own since 2012. Okay. Let's, uh, let's just, let's keep it hyper-focused at this point on the properties that you have in Iowa. And the reason I say that is that, that will, that will give us a reference. Now, the question, the question I have for you is when you purchased those properties, did they already have established locations for food plots? Have they been through any uh, tree stand improvement management, uh, or was it just kind of rough ground? Yeah, neither neither farm had had any amount of hunting on it at all, and neither farm had any kind of habitat improvements or established food plots or gotcha. you know any kind of timber stand improvements or anything okay neither, neither farm had any of that gotcha did they already have a deer a local deer herd or a deer population on those on that farm yes okay. yeah and both and both farms uh had were in areas that i had done a lot of a lot of homework um before i bought the farms so i kind of knew before i bought them that they were in very what i would consider low hunting pressure areas um, where I wouldn't have to really, I don't want to say work real hard, but my chances of getting two and three year old deer into the four and five year old age class, which is what I wanted to do, not that everybody has to do that, yeah, would probably be a little easier than say an area that just got really high hunting pressure. Yeah, yeah. So how far, how far are your properties from your house? Well, one property I live on. Yep, and that's, okay. that's an 80 acre piece or an 80 acre piece. And it's really only 40 acres because the other half is row crop tillable. Gotcha. Uh, you know, surrounded by roads. And then the other piece is probably, I want to say 18 miles, something like that from where I live. And that's 120 acres. And that's, that's probably a little bit better deer hunting. That's probably a little easier to hunt. Uh, but obviously the 40 right next to my house here. Um, is right next to my house, so access for me is a little easier. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so when you when you narrow down the farms, you ended up buying them. I have a feeling that you were already thinking about what you were going to do from a, a habitat and management, uh, land management, uh, to to be the first thing that you wanted to do on that. I mean, because it sounds to me like you know you were you were already a white tail nut back then, and and just like me, like. I'm thinking about buying 
some property at some point and I already have ideas in my head of what I would want to do and I'm not even a landowner yet. So what were some of the first things that you either researched or actually went and did on your property from a, like a, a management or habitat uh, perspective? Well, both farms, when I bought them, had access from multiple areas, north, south, east, and actually west. My 120-acre farm, I can, get, I can get to any of the 120 acres from any, from any direction. In my 40 by the house here, I can get really from any direction besides the west. So to me, that was very important was access to the property with different wind directions and stuff like that. And then both of these properties, it's not like I looked at that 120 acres, liked it and bought it. That was probably the 30 or 40th farm that I looked at that when I said, okay, this is, this is meets my criteria, everything I want. And I literally bought it like the next day I put an offer in and got it because I wanted it that bad. But that was only after 20 or 30 times of walking different farms. And then on this 80 that I bought, um, it was the same thing. It's probably a dozen farms. I bought the 80, uh, second, probably, uh, what was it? Four years later. So the first thing I want to say is if you're looking to buy a farm, um, I guess that's a whole nother podcast, but yeah. there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of things that I looked at before I would even consider buying a farm and spending that kind of money just to hunt deer. But then once I own the farms, because they already met all my criteria, which which a lot of the stuff was, you know, I wanted to make sure that there was areas on the farm that I could convert in the bedding habitat. Not that it necessarily had to be bedding habitat already, but the potential had to be there that either through plantings or through some hinge cutting or clear cutting or what have you, that I could create bedding where I wanted it. And that's actually the first thing I did on my 120-acre farm that I bought in 2012. Uh, that year, my son and I actually went late muzzleloader hunting and because it's the first year I had that farm, the hunting was was pretty poor. The, the deer had moved out. The local deer herd had moved out because there was the habitat was actually very poor on the farm. There weren't any there weren't any kind of standing crops or food sources in between. You know, no egg that was standing, and the habitat being pretty poor, there just weren't that many deer on that farm at all. So we only hunted for one or two days, and then actually just put our guns away and we started on creating good habitat in the form of buck and doe bedding. So that's gotcha. the very first thing I did. Um, was hinge cutting. It was, it was hinge cutting. It was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of, I'm losing it right now, but shade bark hickory. Yeah. So the predominant, the predominant tree species on part of that farm, which is where I wanted to put the bedding was shade bark hickory. So it was easy to go in there and do a lot of hinge cutting the bigger trees, I didn't even bother hinging. I just cut them down, and we created like a kind of a bigger area of bedding, and then we also created a bunch of pockets of bedding closer to the food for those, and and then farther back off the food, which we were hoping would attract bucks later. Okay. So that was in 2012. How that was did the you, first thing I did on that farm. Okay. How did you identify those locations as far as where on the specific piece you wanted to make those? Uh, those bedding areas and, and implement that hinge cut. So for me, it's kind of a, it's kind of a process. And I, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make 
and if I could just touch on that for a bit, yeah. I watched a hunting, I watched a hunting video. I want to say two or three years ago, and it was a by, it was a by a pretty, pretty well-known hunter here in the Midwest from Iowa. And he's a good guy. There's nothing, I'm not trying to say anything wrong, but I, I fundamentally disagree with the comment he made on the show. And he was saying one of his farms, he was doing some plantings and other farm he was doing hinge cutting. And he made the comment that, all of your farm should have great habitat on it that you should have, you should have no part of your farm. That's, that's not at its hundred percent potential for great habitat. And I 100% disagree with that because the last thing you want to do is attract deer to bed where you have to walk in and out every day yeah. or track attract deer to a food source where that's one of your access points. So every time you walk out from an evening hunt, you're bumping all the deer off of that food source. So I think that's the number one mistake. And I, and I, this is, this is not me saying that I've never made this mistake. This is me learning in the past when we had that lease in Wisconsin. I know we don't want to talk about that, but I learned then that you don't want to put bedding and food sources and transition food plots. And these are all things we can talk about today, Yeah. but you don't want to put them just where it's easy or convenient or Boy, this is this ridge right here is open, so I want to cut all these trees down and do a bunch of hinge cutting in here, so the deer bed here. Well, you you don't necessarily want them to bed there, unless it fit, fits an overall hunting strategy. So to answer your question, what I like to do is I like to start with you can either start with bedding and then transition like transition type food plots, transition areas to like a main food source, or you can start at the main food source and work your way back. Either way. But you want to plan out and encourage, I guess is the right word, the deer to use this bed to transition area to a main, like, destination food source um, travel pattern each and every day. Yeah. So when, you plan, so when you plan out your hinge cutting, your timber stand improvement, or where you want these deer to bed, you need to have some foresight to say, if, I, if the deer are going to bed here, where can I put a transition area in? Where can I put some apple trees and maybe a, a small tenth of an acre little green spot with a couple tree stands where it leads them out to the egg, you know, the, the soybean fields and the alfalfa field. And you should really be thinking about all that before you ever hinge cut a single tree or ever plant a single food plot. Because the worst thing you can do is just go in and every little opening on your land put a food plot. Yeah. And every, every tree, that every spot that's, that's clear and open while we're going to hinge here because we want to create bedding cover because you don't really want to do that. You want to, you want to make your, your time and your money and your resources. You want to put that to work for you so that it's fun to hunt these deer. Right. You can actually force them into or encourage them into a pattern that you set up for them. Yeah. Almost like you're making the travel route between point A and point B and then you're setting up on that travel route throughout the season. Yeah, so so it's the opposite of public land, right? So when you go on public land, you can't do any of this stuff. So you, you're forced to say, where are the deer bedding? Why are they bedding there? Where are they exiting their beds? You know, what, what food sources are they going to? Whatever that is, and then trying to figure out how can I get in here on them? What's my entrance route? What's my wind direction? Where do I hang my stand? When you own a property you can actually manipulate the surroundings and manipulate the food sources and the bedding areas to get the deer to do 
exactly what you want them to do. So it makes it easier to hunt. Yeah. So that, that really, excuse me, in the Midwest and down here in Southern Iowa, you know, all across the Midwest, you don't really need food plots and great bedding habitat for the deer. The deer don't need it. It's already there. They already have tons of egg. Uh, people were killing nice deer and had great hunting way before food plots and hinge cutting and everything got popular. What I use food plots and hinge cutting for, obviously going back to it keeps me in the game all 12 months and it's fun to do, but it also makes it easier to hunt deer because I can, I don't want to say force them into because they don't follow the script always, but you can manipulate the surroundings so that you can get the deer to bed where you want them to do, and you can get the deer to follow a certain draw out next to your transition plot, and then right on by you, out yeah. to your destination field, and you get down from your stand and, and walk back to your cabin, and, and the deer never knew you were there. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, when you did implement that hinge cut, you know, and, and created those bedding areas, did you see a direct result in that, like the next year? Yeah, so the, the next year, it definitely got better because when you open up that canopy, the uh, the undergrowth just explodes, and the first things that, the first thing that'll come up is your stump growth. Yep, and then your your blackberry briars, um, prickly ash. The very next year, that stuff is up two, three, you know, sometimes even four feet. Um, but I think really the the best bedding habitat that you get from a hinge cut is probably year two and three. And then you're forced to go back maybe in years five and six and, and, and maintain those bedding areas. Cause if you don't, the habitat that you created back in years one, two and three is now going to grow past what the deer need as far as woody browse for their, their daytime snacks in their bedrooms. Yeah. But so it's about a, you know, and I'm just giving estimations. It's about a three year, a three year process where you, you go in and you do some hinge cutting, <clears throat> excuse me. And hinge cutting is, is so successful because you're creating habitat instantly because the hinge cut tree will continue to grow. So the tops are on the ground and continue to grow sometimes for two or three years or even longer after that. Plus the log, the tree itself, the trunk of the tree creates horizontal cover, which is deer like that because it protects them from seeing other deer and it protects them from uh, human contact. So, you know, instantly when you hinge cut a, a tree, you're creating pretty good bedding habitat for deer. Yeah. But what they really want in their beds is that horizontal cover. This is my opinion, but they have to have some kind of woody browse in there during the day so they have something to snack on. That's what they need for good bedding habitat. That's, that's why deer a lot of times don't bed in a 40-acre switchgrass field. They might if hunting pressure gets really, really hard, but their their preferred bedding is not in a forty acre switchgrass field because there's no daytime food. Right. They want something not only that's going to provide safety, but kind of a snack throughout the day so they don't yep. have to travel so far. Right. Yep, that's what they want. Okay. That's what they want. And if you give them what they want, and then and then obviously you're creating that that bedding area. And, and it's not always just hinge cutting because you could have open ground. You could have cow pasture. So let's say your, let's say your farm is cow pasture and you want to convert some of that pasture ground into bedding habitat. Well, that might be 
that may be a combination of switchgrass with some conifers, but within that, you have to have food. So then you might be planting some dogwood or some hazelnut, something like that, so that these deer have something to snack on during yeah. the day, and then they'll use it. Then they'll bed in it. Yeah. Okay. So when you did this hinge cut, obviously uh, it worked. Was there? Did you see more deer? on your property or did the deer that were already on your property hang out throughout the whole year? The latter. So okay. the, the area, the area in the neighborhood already had a, a very good deer population. And in fact, I would argue it's too high and I need to shoot more does just because I don't think a lot of the neighbors do shoot enough does. So the, the population was there, but what it did is two things. One is it kept them all year by creating better habitat. And the second thing, it made it easier to hunt because I created this bedding to transition area to destination or what I call like an exterior food source, something that's away from cover. And then I got these deer to travel a couple hundred yards every single day. It made bow hunting phenomenal on that farm because the deer are on this pattern. And I did, I don't disrupt the pattern because I typically don't hunt the bedding area and I typically don't hunt the destination or exterior food source. And I'm always hunting these little transition areas where I can get in without bumping a single deer. And then the deer generally will feed past me, headed out to that exterior food source, and I can get down from my stand in, in the evening and then head back out. And yeah. the same in the morning. I can, I can catch them on their way back to bed. But yet when I'm getting down from my stand, I'm not in their bedroom where I can have a chance of spooking the deer. Yeah. So it kept them there all year. It made them easier to hunt, which is really the reason why I like doing it. But then the third thing is if you set this pattern up of bed to transition to feed and you can do it successfully, you can hunt pretty hard all year and not burn out your farm, which is really the, like a side benefit of if you do it right, you can hunt three, four or five days a week all season long and you're not going to burn your farm out. Whereas if you go in and you put a little bitty, what they call the, the big, and I've done this before, so I know how it can harm you. The, the big thing that the seed companies and stuff are always, they're all selling these kill plot feeds. So every little quarter acre opening that you have on your land, you got one of these little kill plots. And I, the biggest mistake I see hunters doing is they'll have like an 80 acre piece or a 40 acre piece. And they'll have a dozen of these kill plots scattered all throughout their farms and they're going and hunting all of them. And if, and if you just draw on a piece of paper, like an aerial photo with a pencil, like your access route where you're going in and out and then where your scent is going, well, heck, by November 1st, if you're not seeing any deer on your property, that's why. It's because you, you basically drove out your farm every, every time when you went and hunted one of these little kill plots. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with all that extra pressure, it's never good. No, no. In fact, you're, you'd be better off. You'd be better off to not ever plant a single seed in a food plot or ever hinge cut a tree. If in your mind, you can't plan out where to put the stuff first. Yeah. So there, I don't think, I don't think there's been enough attention in the whitetail information world about where and, and how as much, you know, what seed to plant. Yeah. And, you know, what kind of seed you got to buy and how you fertilize it and 
you got to buy all the equipment to plant the food plots and, and all that kind of stuff. But you can do a lot of harm. You can really do a lot of negative effects to your hunting success on your farm if you do it wrong. Because you'll just you'll attract a bunch of deer to all these little food plots or to these bedding areas. And then by going into your stand and hunting in that stand and then everything, every different day, every day, all these different stands you have, you can actually drive the deer out of your property right when it gets good. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, now that you mention it, I have a couple tree stands on one of the properties that I hunt, which I have not put any management efforts into it because it's, it's permission ground, but because of the access, because of where they bed and where the food source are, you know, where the food source is, I have a couple stands along that, uh, that route that with, you know, given the correct wind, I could hunt those tree stands five, you know, as many times as I wanted to with specific wind directions and probably not get busted ever going in and out, out of there. So those are, and those are the best stands. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit more about hinge cutting because it's that time of year, right? Where now is the perfect time to start doing that because, you know, there's no leaves. It's not hot. uh, You know, there's no vegetation out in the timber. So you can get a really good idea of, of what you need to cut down. So how big of the area how big of an area are you giving to hinge cutting? So I, I like to do my hinge cutting in pockets. So what I mean by a pocket is once I find the location where I want deer to bed. So I think that's the, the first key. The first thing is don't ever fire up a chainsaw until you listen to the first part of this podcast and you figure out where do I want the deer to bed. Yep. So where are they, where are they never going to smell me? Where am I not walking by them? You know, if, if my only access is here, I don't want to have my hinge cutting where my scent is going in when I'm walking in and out. So you have to figure that out first. And then I think instead of going in, in hinge cutting five acres, I like to do pockets of, it, it depends. Sometimes it can be three trees. Sometimes it can be eight trees, but try and make kind of a brush pile. So if, if you can imagine taking five trees, and hinge cutting them so the tops kind of all fall on the same pile. Right. See what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. And then, and then I think doe family groups will bet around that. So you might have a doe and a fawn and then maybe last year's, you know, like a yearling, a yearling doe with her uh, two fawns and stuff like that. They'll bet around that, you know, what I want to call a brush pile. So an actual yardage that might be 20 yards by 20 yards maybe 15 yards by 15 yards, something to that, to that effect. And that's enough bedding habitat for one small doe family group. Right. And then they'll have the tops to eat on the first year, the second year, the third year, until the tree actually dies. You'll have horizontal cover for the deer, which they love. And then by opening up the canopy, you're going to have all sorts of broadleaf weeds, blackberry briars, prickly ash, Hopefully you have some like dogwood, some native dogwood, maybe some native honeysuckle, different woody browse that come up and, and you're basically done. You can make one of these pockets of bedding habitat in 20 minutes. Yeah. 
And then all you're required to do is go back, like I said, about every three years, give or take, and you might have to cut some of the new regrowth down again. Some of the some of the woody brows might actually start growing up and being one or two or three inches tall. And if there's enough enough of a canopy, all those weed species that you want for the deer to have their their woody brows feed for the day during the daytime, it's going to start getting choked off again. That maybe it'll last five, six, seven years. It, it doesn't know, but you have to you have to maintain these bedding areas. But it, but again, to go back in with a chainsaw and zip some of them off is really no big deal. And if you're doing doe family, if you want like doe bedding, then then you want to target areas close to food. So for me, because I'm doing main bedding and then a tra- little transition plot and then an exterior food plot, like a bigger food source, that doe bedding area is going to be b- relatively close to that transition area. And then your buck bedding, so you might have one or two pockets next to one transition area and then 200 yards away if you have a different main bedding to transition to exterior you might have another couple pockets two three four pockets depending on what your deer herd looks like next to your transition area and then if you back off another 200 yards and you don't you don't have to use a tape measure or anything like that i'm just using kind of examples then if you do some more pockets and then these i usually spread out a little bit more i'll drop three or four, five, six trees in no pocket, but then I might go 70, 80 yards away and drop another pocket of trees, and that'll be more for your buck bedding. Yeah. You get it back off of food, a couple hundred yards back off of that food source. So so by doing this, by doing this, if you do it correctly, the deer are going to want to bed there because they have everything they need for daytime bedding. They have the food, they have cover. Maybe there's a little water hole in there somewhere. So they're going to bed there because you've given them what they want. Right, right. Now, this is kind of, that, that's kind of unique theory because I don't consume a lot of habitat management type uh, content, but the content that I have, uh, I guess, consumed that talks about hinge cutting or I've seen about hinge cutting, they, they're doing large, larger areas of, um, you know, but you know, like acres and acres and acres or whole ridges when they're doing their hinge cutting and making huge bedding areas, which I feel like if you're making one giant bedding area and they could bed anywhere in a five, six, seven acre area, you're again, limiting yourself to where those deer are going to be bedding, right? You don't know where in that five or six, seven acres that they're going to be bedding as opposed to, hey, I know that I did some work right here within a 20-yard by 20-yard area. That's where they're going to bed. Well, you're 100% right, number one. Number two is who who in in the Midwest has 15 acres they can hinge cut? So yeah. it's not – most people can't even do that. Number three, if, if you accept for a minute – that I'm correct that you have to go back every three or four years and maintain this. I'd rather maintain a 15 yard by 15 yard pocket every three years, as opposed to a 15 acre, basically clear cut of hinge of hinge trees. Right. You know, right. I don't, and deer don't need that. Deer don't need 30 acres of prime hinge cut habitat to bet. They just, they don't need it. They, they need, 
I, I should say they need because they don't need anything to bet. They'll bet anywhere. I mean, we know that. You can see, sometimes you see deer bedded 10 yards off the freeway, but what they prefer is to have some horizontal cover, some daytime browse, woody browse, briars, something. They don't need to have an alfalfa field in their bedding area, but they need some kind of daytime browse. And then they want it away where they're not getting pressured. Right. Maybe, and, and, you know, and in the wintertime, maybe if you can incorporate a, a ridge that has a south-facing slope or something like that, you know, that's starting to get in a little bit more specifics. But, you know, I guess I'm not a big fan of the 10 acres, the 5 acres, the 10 acres, these huge hinge cuts, because, number one, I, I don't – most people don't have that kind of acreage where they can do that. Number right. two, they're hard to maintain. And then the, the third reason, and maybe even the better reason, is you don't create that uh, your desired outcome of knowing exactly where the deer are going to bed. Because now, if you if you've done an entire ridge top and your ridge top is let's say 600 yards long, you've just created bedding habitat 600 yards long, and it goes back to my earlier statement of you don't necessarily want the best habitat on your entire farm. Right. Not not for hunting purposes because what you you're basically you're not setting up any kind of movement pattern that you can take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's multiple exit and entry routes, which just complicate things even more. And okay, cool. So, and, and specifically to this uh, time of year, and one thing that I've noticed is that uh, this podcast, this is going to be a multi-part podcast because habitat, there's so many different things to do uh, at so many different times a year. And so I just want to kind of focus on this March time frame, this uh, late, you know, late, late winter, early spring time frame. Other than hinge cutting, is there anything else that you're doing this time of year or anything that you've done this time of year as far as uh, habitat work? I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, do you burn? Probably not. No, I don't burn just because I'm afraid to. Yeah. Um, I mean, guys that, that burn CRP and stuff, that that you can do this time of year. Uh, but actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually starting to get away from burning my uh, CRP grasses and I'm because I, I did a lot of uh, work with the NRCS on different methods of um, disking like switchgrass and stuff like that so yeah. I'm I'm actually getting away from burning although burning is a phenomenal way if you have a weak you know let's say you have a, a stand of switchgrass that you actually want to get thicker you want you want more of a monoculture of thicker switchgrass well then burning is your best is your absolute best option. But for me, I've never had where I had to, where I had to thicken a switchgrass stand. Mine, mine have been really good. <clears throat> so if anything, I actually want to probably knock the switchgrass back just so I can get a little bit of diversity and edge. And that's, that's a whole other topic, but here in Southern Iowa, you have a lot of these draws. So you don't have necessarily, 60 acres of timber, a lot of it, a lot of like my 120 acre farm has a nice, about a 45 acre block of timber where I, where I do these pocket hinge cuttings, but then there's a lot of draws. There's a lot of draws that come out in the tillable. And if you want to have good uh, bedding habitat for those or just better habitat in general on these draws, a good thing to do would be to disc that switchgrass, knock that switchgrass back along the edge of those draws, because that'll, create some uh 
less competition for that grass, so you can get some good woody browse and briars and uh, broadleaf weeds and stuff for, to grow up, which is better for deer. Because a, a monoculture switchgrass for deer provides you know decent thermal cover, but like I said before, deer are not going to typically don't want to. I shouldn't say they're not going to because they will, but they don't want to bed in a 40-acre piece of switchgrass because there's no food out there during the daytime. Yeah. But that's not to say they won't bet on the edge of a 20-acre switchgrass field that has a draw coming up through it if you can give them some good woody browse and, and they'll have that nice thermal cover if they're on the edge of that switchgrass. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So other than uh, other than hinge cutting, do you do any type of, I guess, logging throughout? I know – you know, logging is a, a big term because you think of logging as once every 25, 30 years, I'm going to log my property. Do you do any of that on a large or even a smaller scale? So that, for me, that's just a, that's a question of money. Yeah. So when I, when I hinge cut, when I did this hinge cutting for these shade mother kickers like I was telling you about back in 2012, I did the hinge cutting because hinge cutting is probably preferred for habitat because it creates that horizontal cover with that lawn laying yep. sideways. Plus there was no market for shade bark hickory. If I had, if I had that same scenario, the exact same scenario on that 120 acre farm, but instead of being 40 acres of mostly shade bark hickory, it was, you know, black walnut and red and white oaks and stuff like that. Well then I definitely would have not, hinge cut black walnut, I would have sold it on the market and got the money for it. That's not to say that you can't hinge cut a white oak tree and provide great bedding habitat because you can, Uh, you know, a white oak that's hinge cut, I would argue would provide more cover and nutrition and food for a deer than the acorns that it produces in a year. But at the same time, the business guy of me or the the frugal guy of me is not going to cut down a tree that's worth several hundred dollars for bedding habitat if I can sell it. So, so for me, timber harvest and logging is more of a money thing as opposed to a habitat habitat thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So it's more of, Hey, I'm going to cash in on this right now uh, while the market is, you know, while the tree market's high, as opposed to, Hey, I'm going to, uh, while I'm in there doing management work, I might as well log it. Right. Yeah. Yep. Correct. However, correct. I, I've hinged, I've hinged caught oak trees because I, it was in an area I wanted to create this pocket of bedding cover and there wasn't uh box elder and hickory and, you know, what I would consider more of a junk tree as far as dollars. There wasn't that stuff in there. It was oaks. So yeah. I hinged cut some oaks to create a bedding pocket because I, I didn't see the value in the oak tree for the acorns as much as I saw it laying uh, horizontally on the ground. And some of these hinge cut trees too, like an oak tree, if you're, if you're lucky and you hinge it correctly and it falls right for you and you, you can you can maintain enough of that outer bark layer, some of those trees will grow on the ground for 15 years if yeah. you're lucky enough. Yeah. So I'd argue that creates and gives the deer more nutrition than if you're lucky enough to get a good acorn crop every couple of years or something out of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And from a logging standpoint, let's see, I was, I, this was uh, like three years ago. Now I was really mad because the, uh, uh, 
or I shouldn't say mad. I was frustrated. The landowner that I hunt on was like, yeah, we're going to do some timber. We're going to be logging parts of the property. And I'm like, what? During October, late October, early in, into November. And uh, sure enough, they were in there chopping down trees and stuff throughout most of the archery season. The good news is, is that through all my complaint, like myself complaining, like, oh, my season's ruined, all this stuff. I ended, it, it has ended up turning into like certain parts of the, where they've done these heart, this uh, tree harvest has been absolute awesome habitat in return because yep. exactly like what you just said, that sunlight is now being able to get into the forest floor and it has, it has made it really thick, really nasty tree. All the treetops are still there. The, uh, the, they've taken out, uh, you know, obviously the trunks of what they harvested, but all the treetops are there. The, uh, the lights d- down in there, we have all this, these real young trees popping up and they're growing really fast and it has made some absolute beautiful bedding areas, uh, on the farm in some, in some yeah, it- really random places, but still, uh, great bedding all the same yeah so that's a good point actually because if you're going to bring in a commercial logging company they're not well i shouldn't say they're not gonna but they're gonna have to be willing if that's what you want to log the trees that you want in the areas that you want them to log right so that so that you don't create this great bedding habitat where you don't want it right so that's so that's actually a good point that if if you're listening to this and you're thinking you know, boy, I really have some nice oak and I really have some walnut or whatever trees that you have value on your land. If you want all the money for it and you want all of it taken out, you know, I can't fault you for that, but just be careful. Um, I just, I've, that's the number one, that's the number one thing I think people do wrong with habitat, whether it's logging or hinge cutting or food plots is they're spending no time deciding where, and all the time deciding what to plant and what right. kind of tractor should I buy and what kind of what kind of seed should I get and boy I watched this TV show and they were using this kind of turn up and they were using this canola and it's it's always what 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 instead of where and I think yeah. I think the where should be like ninety five percent of it yeah. as opposed to what that's yeah. that's just my opinion and yeah. it, it goes right back to your logging your logging thing too just be careful from a deer hunting perspective. Not from a money perspective, from a deer hunting perspective, be careful if you get a logger in there that takes all 80 acres of your farm or whatever it is, and now you have awesome bedding habitat everywhere, and you just made it harder to hunt. Just yeah. be careful that that would happen. Yeah, yeah. And the the thing about this farm is they don't care about hunting, right? It's uh, it's your standard IO farm. They're there for the ag, and they're there for the the return on investment, right? So there, there was no thought into deer habitat when they went in and logged this place. So they logged all over, you know, random places all over, which overall now made better habitat for deer. But, uh, and that, the, that's the cool thing that I kind of like is I'm in the process of now relearning where all these new bedding areas are and how to hunt, uh, you know, as far as a strategy, learn to hunt, uh, the farm all over again in, in certain parts of it. So Although frustrating, it's it's uh, educational as well because part of my favorite part of bow hunting is the strategy, right? How am I going to intercept this deer coming through this farm? And uh, it's that chess match we all love, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I can tell you another, a little story when I was, when I was growing up, when I was like 12 and 13 and 14, there was this hay field at my grandpa's farm. And I, I'm going off of memory, but this hay field had to be like 40 acres. And I would hunt that hay field almost every night. And I'd see 30 deer every night on this 40 acre hay field. And I never got a single deer in probably two or three years. And it's because it's too big. I couldn't narrow it down. And I was jumping around from this stand to this stand to that trail to that trail. And the chances of getting the right trail with the right wind and everything falling together on a 40-acre hay field was almost impossible. I couldn't do it. And that's, that's the same with bedding cover or food plots. You know, the bigger the stuff is, which is why I like these pockets, going back to that earlier question you had, but I, I had a different way of explaining it, I guess, now. If you make these little bedding pockets smaller where you can put like a little pin tab on Google Earth and say that's where that bedding pocket is, that really narrows down where those deer are going back to bed in the morning. Whereas if you did an entire ridge or 40 acres worth, you're right back to my scenario when I was 12 years old. Where, where are they? How are they going in there? Yeah. Where, are they get, where are they going in? What draw are they taking in? You have no idea. And yeah. It probably changes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I think this is a really good place to stop because I have a feeling the next conversation starts getting into spring and we start getting into prepping for food plots and planting food plots. And uh, I think that's a whole nother can of worms. So I think this is a good place to stop. So once again, Tom, appreciate you hopping on the podcast and I'm looking forward to uh, the next conversation. Uh, I am too. I'm looking forward to some warmer weather down here too. Oh, that's a fact. I still got eight inches in my front yard. I don't think we have that, but we're probably not far behind you. But I, I really, uh, I'm getting the itch to get some get some outside stuff done, and it's the cold and the ice, and we had a half an inch of ice the other day raining. So. And that brings us to the end of another Iowa Sportsman podcast. Like I said in the intro, please go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page. Lots of content comes through there. Uh, Lots of, uh, I think they do some contests and stuff off of that page. So make sure you go like the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page. Go and like the Sportsman's Nation uh, Facebook page and Instagram page as well. Lots of good information coming from there. And uh, that brings us to an end of another podcast. I think I don't have too much else to say, except we'll see you next time. Mm